the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell? What the hell this week? We're talking about patriotism and nationalism. We've been hearing a lot of negative things about nationalism, and Yasha Monk, a friend of this podcast who's been on with us before, so a recidivist guest, has written a brand new book in defense of patriotism and why patriotism is important, and he talks about a particular kind of patriotism we'll get into in our interview with him. But I think it's a really important time to have a discussion about patriotism because we're hearing constantly these days how America is really well, all it's cracked up to be, that this country was founded to perpetuate racism, that they perpetuate Perpe- slavery, right, to perpetuate slavery. slavery, the 1619 Project, all the debates about CRT in our schools. And there's a, there's a, there's a pushback against this. Uh, there's a resurgence of patriotism in this country and people pushing back and saying, you know, no, America's a pretty exceptional place and we need to fight for that. What do you think, Dan? So I really, I really like the way that Yasha is thinking about it, we don't we don't always agree, uh, but I do think that it's very important to restore, in this case, the love of country. You know, and that doesn't mean that you have to love every aspect of our history. It doesn't mean that you have to lie and say that we've always been perfect or that we've always lived up to the best ideals because we haven't. But at the end of the day, and especially compared to so many others, damn, this is a better place. America is, in fact, the country that everybody wants to come to. And everybody as, still wants to. As evidenced wants, by our, border, our southern right. border today, And everybody right? still wants to come here. And if it is such a terrible country as, in fact, the New York Times and others keep telling us, then one has to ask why it is that they keep coming. But uh, there's, another, there's another story that I'm forcibly reminded of uh, when, when we talk about this issue. You know, for a certain generation, and I think that generation is actually passing, I think that you and I and our parents represent this um we're passing yes i know my god <laughs> me especially you speak for yourself keep us uh, up. <laughs> i know i knew that was coming but uh but it well, was it was closer. actually a resentment at being asked where you're from uh oh really you know where's your family from so somebody who i who i knew told me this amazing great story that uh that that her daughter's school uh this probably happened about 10, 15 years ago, that her daughter's school had assigned the child to do a, a family history. And uh, um, and it had to include where everybody came from. And the mom, who was my friend, was really mad. Okay, no, uh, I'm sorry. We're Americans. It's none of their damn business to ask where your grandparents came from. You're here. You're legally here. You were born here. You're an American. We're not hyphenated anything, and we're not going to talk about that. Anyway, you can agree or disagree as to whether her interpretation of this was right, but it was, in fact, the view of a lot of people that, you know, it's not important where we came from, it's important that we're here. And so the daughter, of course, is completely stuck. She's not able to do her assignment. And, you know, for those of you guys who have kids, you know, she's going to do the assignment. But the mom worked in national security, and she happened to work, she happened to be an expert on North Korea, but happened to also be working a lot on, on Iraq and on the Kurds. 
And at dinner at night, they would talk about, you know, this bad thing about North Korea and this bad thing about North Korea and also about the Kurds. Anyway, mom goes in to see the the teacher and on the wall are these kids' assignments. And she looks up and she's like, why am I seeing the North Korean flag (laughs) and the Iraqi flag on my kids' paper? (laughs) And the answer is because the kid, desperately searching for something to say, said that her family was from North Korea and Iraq (laughs) because that's what they talk about at dinner. It just goes to show you. I mean, there is a little bit of extremism, but I mean, yeah, it's great to be an American and it's great not to have to talk about where you came from because you're so proud to be here. Well, here's the thing. I think American nationalism is different from nationalism in almost any other country. And that's for a reason is because we are the only nation in the history of mankind that was founded on an idea, not on blood and soil, but on the idea of human freedom, the principles in our declaration of independence. So therefore you, you, you can have a intense pride in those ideas without suddenly thinking that everyone else is inferior to you and therefore must be destroyed. If you have a race-based nationalism in which you think your race is superior, well, we all saw what happens when that gets out of control in, in Europe in World War II. But we have the concept of American exceptionalism, which is that Americans at least used to believe, and many still do, that this was a nation founded by divine providence to plant the idea of freedom and democracy and self-government on the earth and to be, the phrase was, a light to the nations, which is from the Bible. It's from Isaiah. That's our purpose. And so Americans proudly say, yes, we are, Americans regularly say, we're the greatest nation on earth. I think you believe that. Oh my God, I, cer- yes. I certainly believe that. That doesn't mean that we want to go and conquer every other nation and subjugate just, them just because, just because they're <laughs> inferior to us. But there's there's nothing intrinsically dangerous about that idea. Right. Uh, where it is dangerous when your nationalism is based on blood and soil and, and a large segment of your population suddenly is taught by a populist leader that we are in fact a master race and that all other races must be eliminated as a result. Right. So I think where Yasha goes with this is Look, he's younger even than you, Mark, who is, you know, obviously very, very much in your first blush of youth. But uh, but, but he's younger, and I do think there are generational differences. You know, I don't think that a parent of a kid now would tell their child that they're, that they're supposed to say they're just an American. I think that in addition, because, and we can decry this and we have repeatedly, because of the lack of history education in our country, because of the lack of civic education in the country, because people don't actually know what the Bill of Rights is, let alone, you know, where Iowa is on a map. Because of that, there is a decreasing sense of, of pride in our country. And I think what Yasha is talking about, which is a form of cultural patriotism, is not a bad thing. I prefer the kind that we used to have. I prefer the patriotism that is based on a genuine understanding of what American values are and what American history is with an understanding that we've also made mistakes, but we're getting better, right? But there's an acceptance of reality in his book and in his work that is that maybe that's not going to work for everybody. And maybe it's okay, actually, to have a cultural pride in our country. Now, again, that's Not what I think is best, but I do think that it's an important and interesting idea. Well, I think what he's talking about is he's trying to find a a formula for patriotism in in countries that are not necessarily founded on an idea, right? So, you know, how can Hungarians be proud of being Hungarian? How can Poles... They they have no shortage of being proud of being Hungarian for reasons that aren't always entirely clear to me. There's lots of, you know, how can you find a, a, a constructive patriotism in countries 
where where the cohesive factor is blood and soil, right? And by the way, blood and soil patriotism isn't necessarily a bad thing. We're seeing the blood and soil patriotism of the Ukrainians right now who are defending their soil with their blood against the Russians. But we saw it in World War II as well, and it was less nice. It was less nice, I agree. The Polish national anthem, I won't sing it to you for you. Thank you. Uh, but, But the opening words are, Poland has not yet disappeared so long as we are living. That Poland was a country that was actually partitioned and actually disappeared from the map and survived because of the patriotism of the Poles and their national idea. But that's also blood and soil patriotism in Poland. Well, the point is that you can have pride in your nation. And also, by the way, this is this has implications for immigration, because here in the United States, if half a million Syrians show up and want to come into our country, well, guess what? We've absorbed waves bigger than that before. That's not a big problem. But if you're a, sm- a small country of a few million people and, and half a million Syrians show up on your border, it's a different phenomenon. It's a different has different implications for your society. I think one of the interesting things you pointed out is that a lot of other countries are becoming more like America, that their patriotism is becoming more because they've adopted our ideals, because they've adopted the principles of our declaration and, and similar principles in our constitution, that there's a pride and a common pride in democracy. NATO, for example, is an alliance of democracies. That's what unites us. That's what's so Except what's for up. Turkey. Uh, yes, exactly. Well, again, there are always, there's always complicating exceptions. But I think as more nations around the world become more, shall we say, American, he said in jingoistic patriotic fashion, then nationalism becomes less uh, of a challenge. Look, I think that's right. And I think that a lot of these places are better places for their willingness to welcome and to integrate refugees, but also immigrants, just plain immigrants. It's not just refugees who come into countries. It's, it's plain old immigrants. You know, Australia, where I was born, had an immigration policy that was called white Australia until 1975, if anyone can believe that. And I think Australia is richer for having, you know, for having lots and lots of not white Australia immigrants there. They've changed the country. The food is better for sure. There's those whole varieties of things. And I think and I and I think that for the Less most Vegemite. Part, <laughs> still the same amount of Vegemite, Mark, please. <laughs> I just put Vegemite on a matzo for Passover. Oh my God. And, and it was just great, let me say. For all of you people who don't know what it is, you can reach out to me and I'll explain. Uh, but no, look, I think I think they are that they are they are better for it. Where I think the problem is is where you go overboard. Where in fact you you lose the idea of being any American at all. Now you are yep. simply you know capital B black. You are capital H Hispanic, and, and and by the way that results in the rest of us referring to ourselves as capital W white, which is a country that I don't like I living. I don't I don't want to live in that country. Nope, me neither. I can't stand that. So you know again there's a happy medium here, and I I I really appreciate the fact that Yasha is talking about it. For those of you who don't remember, Yasha Monk is a professor of international affairs at Johns Hopkins University. He writes often for The Atlantic. He had this piece, a fantastic piece, that reminded us why we so enjoy talking to him in the Wall Street Journal. And that's based on his new book called The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. Here's our interview. Yasha, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much. So you had a wonderful piece in the Wall Street Journal that's based on your new book, which was a defense of patriotism. You asked the question, how can defenders of democracy summon the power of patriotism without opening the door to prejudice and chauvinism? Tell, tell us how we do that. Yeah. So, look, I, I'm, I'm a German Jew, so patriotism and nationalism did not come naturally to me. In fact, when I was 20 years old, I really hoped that we would be able to embrace the politics in which um, we overcome the kind of group affinities 
uh, of which patriotism is is one. But over the last couple of decades, I've changed my mind about that for two important reasons. You know, the first is that I think we've seen with the rise of uh, people from from Donald Trump to Narendra Modi to to Vladimir Putin how powerful the emotional resonance and the symbolism of nationalism remains. And to what extent, you know, the world kind of politicians can, can use and exploit that if those who, who are more tolerant and are more inclusive leave all of that symbolism to them. Um, so that's, I think, one important thing. And what we're seeing today in Ukraine, um, that patriotism can also be a real force of good, that it can inspire millions of people to risk their lives to defend the country against an unjust onslaught. And so I, I now think of, of patriotism as a kind of half-domesticated animal, which is to say that it, if it's left alone, if a worse people can provoke it, it can run wild and become very destructive. Uh, but uh, we can also make it useful for us. Um, and so the question then is, how do we do that? What kind of conception of patriotism should we embrace? Um, in order to make it productive in that kind of way. Is there a difference in your mind between patriotism and nationalism, and what is it? So, you know, philosophers have traditionally distinguished between those two concepts very carefully. and They've basically said that, uh, you know, all of the bad things about these national sentiments are, are, are nationalism, and that we should reject. That's dangerous, that leads to wars and exclusion. And then all the good things are patriotism, you know, whenever it just means being able to have solidarity with your fellow citizens and standing up for... A, a democratic country, that's patriotism. I get the point of that distinction, but I worry a little bit that it's overly simplistic, that it precisely sort of misses the extent to which the good sides and the bad sides are often at different, different sides of the same coin. So I like to think of it more in terms of three different conceptions of what patriotism consists in. So one is an ethnic kind of patriotism or nationalism. It's basically saying that what really defines a nation is its common ethnic descent and only those who belong to the historically dominant group are truly members of that society. And that's something that I obviously reject. I think it becomes very quickly an excuse for terribly mistreating members of minority groups. It can lead to wars against other ethnically defined nations. And it's actually empirically no longer reflective of reality, which is to say that most people in the United States, but also in Western Europe, also in Australia, and many other parts of the world, now recognize that they have fellow citizens whose roots are in different parts of the world. Then there's a second kind of conception, which is the one that philosophers and sort of well-meaning intellectuals have traditionally emphasized. And that's a civic patriotism, a patriotism based in, in the Constitution and in our shared values. Now, that's an important part. When I became an American citizen about five years ago, a lot of the reason for that is that I love the American Constitution and uh, the basic liberties it grants me, um, and I was proud to, you know, swear to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. So, um, you know, we should definitely base our love of country on values, uh, which is, by the way, one of the reasons why the people protesting against the war in, in, in Russia at great personal risk are true patriots. They are saying, not in our name, not in the name of our nation should this war go, go ahead. But civic patriotism also has limitations. And in particular, it mischaracterizes the nature of the sentiment because most people just don't care that much about politics. Most people can't tell you what's in the Seventh Amendment. Um, and so when they love their country, it's not for those kinds of political reasons. So what I do in, in, in my new book and The Great Experiment is to suggest a third kind of patriotism as well, what I call cultural patriotism. Because I think when most people say they love their country, they're thinking 
uh, not of some idealized past, but of the dynamic, ever-changing, pretty diverse uh, present-day reality of that country. The thinking of uh, it, it, it sounds and smells and sights, the thinking about its cities and landscapes, the thinking about um, its uh, cultural script, the way we, we talk to each other, the way we interact with each other, the thinking about its celebrities and, and TikTok stars. And I think that we can embrace that everyday patriotism much more than we have in the past because it's, it's a positive force that unites us and it's a forward-looking rather than a backward-looking one. This is fascinating to me. You know, I, I, we may have even talked about this last time we had you on, but years ago when I was working in government, I, somebody from the Swedish embassy came to talk to me and for some reason we digressed onto the topic of how many flags there were on display in America. And she said, yes, whenever we have uh, dignitaries from Sweden come to America, they're always made so uncomfortable by these displays of nationalism, these flags everywhere that you have, because, of course, we associate that with nationalism, and you know what we associate that with. And, uh, you know, to me, I think, as you've, as you've said very clearly, European interpretations of nationalism are very, very different than American interpretations. And we can call it nationalism, we can call it patriotism. I think you're right that patriotism is the is the better word. But we can't make these distinctions, and we can't even embrace the, the cultural nationalism or the cultural patriotism that you talk about without understanding what actually is great. You know, if, if, if your view is... I love America because it's a country where the Kardashians can become famous. That's not a very that's not a very enduring and certainly not a very exportable idea, which is what America has always been about. You need to know our history. You need to know what we stand for. You need to know the values that underpinned what the founders decided. And it seems to me, and you talk about this, that that's a big part of what's missing and why there's been a real decline in the admiration of our country, the patriotism that we see every day. What do you think about that? Well, um, you know, I, I partially agree with you, but I think I might also partially disagree with you. <laughs> That's very diplomatic. Um, obviously, every country is rooted in its history, and uh, it should be proud of a, of a glorious part of its history, just as it should be upfront about the darker elements of its, of its history. And so part of America is Benjamin Franklin and, you know, all those kinds of things. All, all of that is wonderful. But I think that if people only felt American and they only loved this country on the basis of their understanding of the Constitution or on their appreciation for the American past, you would actually have people be much less patriotic than they are. Because most people can't tell you that much about Benjamin Franklin and they can't tell you that much about the founders and they can't tell you that much about the nature of our Constitution. Um, but what 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 a country? Isn't that the problem, is. though? But that, that's part of the problem, and I absolutely am in favor of more civics education and and more emphasis on all of those things. But I actually think that there's also something more straightforward, which which is important. Look, I've lived, I grew up in Germany, I've lived in Italy and France and the United Kingdom and the United States, and I love all of those places. But they're different from each other in really big and important ways. I mean, uh, you know, England and the United States speak the same language more or less. But they are very, very different places in which the nature of human interaction, the cultural script that govern how we talk to each other, the look of the high street, they are all very, very different to each other. And so I think that when actually you have really rapid integration of immigrants, when you see, for example, 
that fears about them not learning English um, uh, simply aren't true. Uh, when you see the extent to which people, when they are born in this country, start to identify with it, even if their parents are from elsewhere, that speaks in part to the great things about the political liberties we give people and, and the nature of our constitution. But it also speaks a lot to just the power of that everyday culture. And you know what? If that everyday culture consists in part of the Kardashians and on silly influences on TikTok, but that is what makes sure that people who are 20 years old feel that they share something, even though they might come from different countries, even though they might have different color of their skin, even though they might have different religious beliefs. I'll take it. You know, that is a lot better than if they didn't feel an appreciation in a shared way for their country. I'll push back on you a little bit because I think that really, what, especially in America, what what separates us from other nations is the Constitution, is the founders, is those ideals. You know, in Europe, you have this problem of blood and soil nationalism, where your nationalism is based on your race and your and your land and your, and your culture. America is different than that because it's the only country in history that's been founded on an idea, the idea of human freedom, the ideas contained in the Declaration and the Constitution. And so, you know, race, you know, if you're if you're if your philosophy is your race is superior, that has certain international consequences. If your idea is that your ideas are superior, that's very different. One, race is exclusionary. Ideas are inclusive. Anybody can be an American. So a nationalism based on ideas is actually a, a positive force in the world if those are the ideas contained in our declaration, aren't, isn't it? So I agree with you that that is one of the reasons why I strongly reject ethnic nationalism. That when you're saying you know, what's great about our country is that uh, its ethnic group is somehow superior to others, then you might easily get into conflict with other countries, including other countries that basically have the same conception, that they that think that their ethnic group is superior. That's the makings of a terrible war. If you say, look, we are a nation based on an idea of self-government, uh, of liberty, uh, then we have reason to be friendly with other nations that actually share the same idea as well. So, so, so I completely agree with you on that. I do think, though, that that can't fully explain why people have a specific love of the United States, because uh, the history of America is certainly a little bit different than the history of many other countries in the world. But at this point, uh, the constitutions of many countries have been inspired by the United States and are actually reasonably similar. So, you know, you have more or less the same set of rights and freedoms and obligations uh, in most liberal democracies around the world, not just in the United States, but in many countries in Western Europe, in Australia, in Japan, and all kinds of places. And yet that doesn't make an American patriot an Australian or a German or a Japanese patriot. So, you know, let's, let's have a thought experiment for a moment. If you think all that makes you, you know, an American patriot is the Constitution, well, what happens if uh, tomorrow um, Austria adopts, you know, word for word the American Constitution? Will he suddenly be an Austrian patriot? No, because part of your patriotism is also a love of your particular country with its particular customs, the particular kind of way in which people are living together. So for me, an accurate description of what it, what it is to love America today is absolutely an appreciation for its constitution, absolutely an appreciation for its civic values. That is one of the reasons why uh, protesting against injustice and protesting against Wars perpetrated by your own country is actually can be the highest form of patriotism because it is saying, I am standing up for this precisely because it does not uh, accord with the deepest values to which we have bound ourselves together. But it is also this other element. It is also 
not in New York City or Washington DC or San Francisco. It is also sharing culture that actually uh, unites us in this country, a culture that's dynamic, a culture that's ever-changing, a culture that bears the marks of the influence of all of these different groups that now live together in the United States, but a culture that is actually very strong and that um, whose strength you feel the moment you step outside of the United States and you remember how different other parts of the world are. It's really funny. I mean, I think in some ways we're sort of having a, a manufactured disagreement because I think fundamentally we really we really do agree that there are really important factors that can that can unite people in diverse democracies and really underpin a positive, not an exclusive, but a positive patriotism. You know, Yasha, you and I have very similar backgrounds. And, and the funniest thing is that I am like the anti-you. So I love America um, very much, but I really can't stand New York. I don't really, I don't really <laughs> love Washington, D.C. Uh, I really much prefer to be in Europe. Um, <laughs> and, but, but I love Americans. And one of the reasons why I love Americans is because is because actually, and I, I worry that this will not be the case in the future, but I look at immigrants to this country and, you know, we can identify the waves of, of immigrants that came in the 20th century and the, uh, with the bigotry that went with it, you know, whether it was the Italians and the Irish or it was the Russians or the Jews or it has been the Mexicans, the Hispanics, or it's the, the Afghans and the Muslims, you know, and there's always a wave of, of hostility. But then, of course, you know, they, they end up being absorbed. Their children end up speaking English. And sure, you're right. They still do end up eating kebabs or pasta or, or, or you know, souvlaki or whatever it is. And maybe we all end up thinking that pasta and kebabs <laughs> and souvlaki are actually American. And that's one of the things that unites us. What I don't Pizza like... Pizza is the most American food there is. It's so true. <laughs> uh, but uh, but in Europe, what I, what I dislike, even though I much prefer being, you know, in Rome and in Paris in a lot of ways, is that... You have banlieue, you know, in Paris. You have these enclaves of people who really aren't absorbed, who from one generation to the next, even if their kids speak French, end up really excluded from society. We don't see it as much in Germany because I think Germany does a better job, but we certainly see it in in the UK with, you know, next-generation Bangladeshis, next-generation Pakistanis joining ISIS, uh, you know, in, in ways that are completely inexplicable. So, and I think part of that is the exclusion that it still exists in Europe. I'm asking a very, very long question. Why do you think that it is actually the sort of the love of New York and the love of Washington and not this great thing that actually absorbs people, what we used to call the melting pot? We don't anymore. Why do you think it's not that melting pot that is, in fact, what people love about America? So the metaphor of the melting pot, I think, is complicated because a lot of the time it seems to imply that you should really give up your culture entirely, that, you know, the resulting American culture might bear the mark of all the influences of different people, but we all become indistinguishable from each other. And I don't think that's actually what sociologically it looks like. I think people can become proud American and at the same time be proud of, of the various kinds of origins they have and uh, uh, sustain the culture in a meaningful way and and, and so that's great. But I actually think that um, by defending a cultural patriotism that is based on these everyday forms of culture, um, uh, that is precisely a way of celebrating what you're talking about, which is the integrative force of the society. There's this weird thing about language, for example, where, where some people on the right really fear that immigrants aren't learning the language, that even the second and third generation 
you know, they will prefer to speak Spanish or Mandarin or some other language um, to speaking English and that one day we're no longer going to have a lingua franca, a language that everybody in the United States can understand. And then on the left, there's sometimes these ideas that, you know, forcing people to speak English and saying that this should be a country in which English is really the language of exchange is somehow bigoted or racist. There's going to be a very substantial portion of the population that doesn't speak English anymore in an ongoing way. Well, then so be it, right? I think that both of those ideas actually completely miss the sociological reality, which is that people are learning the language very, very quickly. So in the first generation, people might come into the country and, uh, you know, they arrive as adults where it's harder to learn a language and they might not come from a background where they had many educational opportunities, so they might really struggle with learning this new language. So there's many people who for 40 or 50 years uh, live in this country and, and don't learn English particularly well. But their children, we're seeing this with great regularity, will speak the language of their parents pretty well because at home, that's usually uh, the language in which the parents speak to them. But they will also speak fluent English. And in fact, they will prefer speaking English with their siblings, with cousins and other relatives of a similar cultural background, with classmates that prefer speaking in English. And by the time of their children, by the third generation, the command of the original language has nearly always been lost. So the grandchildren of immigrants, there's only about 1% of them that still speak the language of their grandparents uh, more than, you know, a couple of phrases. Now, you know, actually, that, that part of it might be a lot. It would be nice if they still understood a little bit more of a grandparents' language. So that shows the incredible integrative force of a society. And that's not the Constitution. That's not, you know, the love of the First Amendment. That is the fact that this lived, changing, diverse, integrating American culture retains this amazing force. Now, I think you're right that because America, for all of its historical flaws, has always been a country of immigration, this works especially well in the United States. And as an immigrant to the United States myself, I certainly feel that. But we shouldn't underestimate the extent to which that also holds in Europe. Uh, there are some serious problems with, with integration in France and other countries, but actually, the children and grandchildren of immigrants, in the great majority, integrate successfully in those societies as well, have rapid socioeconomic progress, um, are actually more likely to, to rise the educational ranks and the economic ranks than similarly positioned uh, children that are born to non-immigrant parents, non-immigrant grandparents, um, and certainly acquire the language in exactly the same way as they do in the United States. You're describing my family, uh, Yasha. I, uh, my mother's from Poland. I grew up speaking Polish in the home. I speak it fluently, but I, I speak English as well, and my kids don't speak Polish, and they're very mad at me for not teaching. My parents grew up in Poland, and, you know, I have passable Polish, and I certainly think it's unlikely that my children once I, I should have some uh, will, will on Polish. So so we're, we're all in the same boat. Exactly. But I think there is a difference between Europe and the United States in that sense. And it is that melting pot and that assimilation. As Danny pointed out, we don't we don't have quite the banlieues that the, that the French have. You can immigrate to France and be there for three generations and not be considered French or not consider yourself French. Not, that doesn't happen here in the United States. And it's because it's very different because France is a nation or Hungary or Poland or Germany are a nation based on blood and soil. And 
this is a nation based on an idea. And so former President Arthur Brooks always says there are millions of people around the world who are Americans in their hearts. They just haven't arrived here yet. All you need to do is subscribe to the creed and you're an American. And so uh, I think that's a fundamental difference between our country and many other countries in the world and why we've been able to absorb so many generations of immigrants and so many waves of immigrants, as Danny described. But wait, Yasha, let me just pile on to Mark's question, because what, the, what, I, no, what I understood you to say is actually, and maybe this is not the way you want to phrase it, I don't know, but maybe what you're saying is actually a lot of countries are becoming more like America in that way than they were. Is that at least in Europe and Australia and elsewhere. Is that is that how you see it? Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. My new book, The Great Experiment, is really about how to make diverse democracies work and, and why that's a hard thing to do. Now, in, the, in a country like the United States, we have a particular kind of history, which is that, um, uh, you know, we've been diverse since our founding. There are at least some groups were also excluded from full participation in extreme ways when you think of slavery and uh, the history of African-Americans in this country. So, um, uh, that comes with some deep disadvantages that you still say, see today, including the sort of long-run impact of that exclusion that form of domination has had on the socioeconomic conditions of at least uh, some African-Americans today. But it also comes with real strength, which is that it's always been a country of immigration, and welcoming new people into the country comes to Americans with, with relative ease. When you look at Germany, where I grew up, for example, the Federal Republic of Germany at its founding after World War II was incredibly homogeneous because of the Holocaust and all of the terrible suffering of the first half 20th century. Um, but it was very homogeneous at that time. And certainly in 1960, if you'd asked the German, or for that matter, an Italian or, uh, or, or a Swede, you know, who's a real German, they would have said something like, well, somebody whose grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents uh, also lived roughly in this part of the world uh, somebody who, uh, you know, descends from the same uh, ethnic group. Uh, but that has started to change. So today, that is no longer the modal answer you get. Most uh, Germans, most Swedes, most Italians now say somebody who uh, has parents who immigrated from Africa or from Asia or from the Middle East, from Turkey, they can be a real German. They can be a real Swede. And those societies, we underestimate how diverse they have become very, very quickly. So the number of uh, people born outside of Germany who live in the country now is about the same and they call it some statistics higher than it is in the United States. And many of them certainly consider themselves German and are considered German. So, you know, yes, there is a distinction there. America does do better at this because of its particular history. But as I was saying, a lot of other countries are actually coming to resemble America in that particular respect. And that's a positive thing because if they want to deal uh, with the diversity in a successful way, they will need to find ways of making people feel like full parts of their country or full members of the country. And they'll need to make sure that the members of a sort of majority group uh, recognize them as full members of, of, of that country. You know, in a country like Germany, that has changed over the course of my lifetime. When I was growing up, just the fact that I was Jewish made me feel like I would never be seen as German. Uh, and while that problem hasn't been entirely resolved, even 20 years later, uh, that feels like less big a deal, like less big an obstacle than did my childhood. I think you're right. There has been a, a, a huge change. There's been a huge change in, in Europe. And 
for the better, although there are still, you know, very, very serious pockets of, of resistance to that. But I think, you know, there are generational changes as well. I guess my question for you is a little bit also about the downsides of this. So one of the things, uh, we used to call this multiculturalism. It's a vile sort of weird school-age word that doesn't really uh, describe anything. But where I'm originally from in Australia, they were very aggressive about multiculturalism. And I think America has become pretty aggressive about it as well. I'm wondering how you reconcile this idea of patriotism, however we define it, as a net good thing with the dilution of the idea of what it is to be an American. In other words, in the old days, you used to say proudly, you know, what someone would say, what are you? You know, and, and someone would come out with their very thick accent and say, I am an American. And it was a wonderful thing, right? But now, it, what we what we sell That was my mother. Right. My mother would, she'd be in a taxi cab and someone would ask her, where are you from? They'd hear her accent and say, where are you from? And she'd say, New York City. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And and now, it's not only is it is it is it not, I'm an American, it's either you know i'm 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 a this american or i'm a that american or i'm that and that american or even worse i'm not an american i'm just going to define myself by the color of my skin or by my ethnicity or by my various prejudices which to me seems like it's going to have the reverse effect a very atomizing effect on this even this cultural patriotism that you talk about how do you see it yeah, I think that's exactly right. So look, there's a set of metaphors that people have historically used to think through what a process of integration should look like and what its endpoint might look like. And so the first one, which you've mentioned, mentioned is that of a melting pot. Now, by the way, uh, you know, this is something that every scholar I've read sort of talks about in very negative terms. Um, and they all mention that it originates in this play by Israel Zangweil. Uh, which was premiered in Washington, D.C. in 1905, I believe. Um, you know, the, the story this play tells is that of a, of a Jewish immigrant whose family was massacred in a pogrom in Kishinev, and he falls in love with this Russian girl who helps him find success as a composer, and she turns out to be the daughter of a baron, and they get engaged. But actually, he finds out when the baron comes to visit her to tell her not to go and marry a Jew, that it was actually him and his troops who had massacred his family. And so this protagonist who, who has this idea of a melting pot, this idea of the new American man that leaves all of the squabbles of history behind, says, I can't do this. I can't marry you. You know, should I think of the you know, faces of my dad's parents every time I kiss you and they break off their engagement? But he, he starts to feel like a failure. And in the end, he actually is able to reconcile with, with her. And they, they do get married because this is a heroic vision of what it takes to forge a darkest pot. It takes being able not to forgive the perpetrator of that injustice, but, but to say, even though, you know, your parents killed mine, we can actually forge this lifelong bond. So there's something attractive to it. But the way in which the idea of a melting pot has often been used does also have real flaws because it does precisely say, look, you know, perhaps American culture will be a little bit of souvlaki and some pierogi and um, some spaghetti and, uh, and and so on, but we'll all become indistinguishable from each other. Um, you have to give up family traditions. You have to give up your cultural heritage in order to become truly American. We shouldn't have any 
lasting indication of your differentness. Otherwise, you fail to become truly Martin. And that, I think, is too constricting of what kind of different cultures we can actually have or what kind of different cultural influences can, can persist. Now, the counter-reaction to that is what you've been talking about, which is a sort of multiculturalist ideal which says two things. One, the right metaphor is the, is the salad bowl of a mosaic. So really, we just have these groups living side by side and we're not going to have any real interaction. We're not going to have any real intermixing. We, we just have these different communities tolerating each other from, from the distance. And then second, it often comes together with the idea that we don't have rights and duties as individuals, but rather that the state just disintegrates into this collection of groups, what uh, one influential British philosopher, Lord Parrott, has called an association of associations. So that, I think, is really dangerous because then you really have parallel societies that don't engage with each other. It becomes very hard to have any form of common identity, of mutual solidarity, so that's also a mistake. So what I think is that, uh, you know, we need a society in which we give people two freedoms. We give them the freedom to be a member of a cultural group, to worship their religion, obviously, to be different from the mainstream in some important respects without having to fear its interference or its judgment. Um, but we also need to give people the liberty to leave their own groups. We also need to give people the liberty to engage with each other. And many people are going to make that choice. Uh, so for me, the best metaphor is that of a public park. Because in a public park, the three of us can go after this conversation and, and have a drink and, and, and chat and just stay amongst ourselves. But we might also end up chatting with the people sitting next to us and, and forging new friendships. And the kind of public park that's most appealing, the kind of society we should aim for, is one in which there's as much as possible this kind of interaction, in which people don't get stuck within their completely separate silos, uh, but actually engage with each other in an open way. So I guess my experience with assimilation and the melting pot as a first-generation American is just so much different than what you described, because my mother grew up in Warsaw. She was a stateless refugee after World War II and made her way over here. And she raised me both to love my Polish heritage and to be a super patriot of this country, a believer in American exceptionalism. And I've raised my kids, even though they don't speak Polish, they, they've been to Poland, they, they're aware and, and proud of their Polish heritage, but they're also as American as, as apple pie. I just don't see the history of forcing anyone being forced to give up there. I mean, that's, that's sort of what's, what's so wonderful about a patriotism and a nationalism based on an idea, which is that you don't have to give up all those things in order to embrace the idea. You can be as Polish or as Jewish or as Italian or as Nigerian or as, as whatever, as Brazilian, as you want to be, as long as you believe in the Constitution and the principles of the Declaration and think that this is the greatest country in the world because you came here and your parents or your parents came here because of those ideas and the freedoms associated with it. I just I just don't see where the the pressure to give up your background is. I actually think you're being a little unfair, but I'll let I'll I'll let Yasha take that. No, one. no, I'll, I'll, you're welcome <laughs> to respond to part of it. How do you think Mark was being unfair? Because look, your mother came here and she was a doctor and she learned English in medical school and had probably learned English before that as well. No. Well, maybe not, but she 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 certainly I hope she spoke English when she was working as a doctor. In New York. I believe she did, having met her, because my Polish is not great. The reality is that lots of people, of course, did feel huge pressure to, you know, to give up 
any sort of previous identity that they had. Where I grew up in Boston, there were two country clubs and one didn't have Jews. And this is not all that long ago. I mean, I'm kind of old. And that, of course, is true. And we had had plenty of segregation. We have had plenty of pushes against that outsiderness. And it wasn't enough, in fact, to say, well, I feel like an American because you weren't going to be treated that way. So we've certainly had these problems historically. I don't think that they don't exist. I don't think it's a straw man that's been built up is what I'm trying to say on Yasha's behalf. You may now answer the question. <laughs> no, so thank you. Because <laughs> seeing as we have you here. <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to say. I do think that sometimes people talk about the melting pot in a straw man kind of way, which is why I told the story of where the term comes from and, and the moral power of that ideal. But I do think that, that, that there has been pressure to conform in American society as well, and that pressure was probably felt more strongly by some groups than by others. You know, it's one thing to be, a, what it takes to be a Polish-Jewish refugee in, in, in New York in the late 40s and, and, and 50s, um, you know, a time when there's lots of European refugees from, from the Nazis in a city that is heavily Jewish. It probably did feel quite different 30 years ago to arrive um, in a more rural part of the United States that uh, perhaps is culturally heterogeneous from Korea or from China or from some other part of the world. Uh, and so I think that, that there the sort of pressure to, to assimilate could be stronger. But where we agree is on the vision of, of where we want to be, right? There is no contradiction between being true to your heritage and valuing it and continuing to honor it in important ways and also being as American as apple pie. And, and I think that both the metaphor of a melting pot and these competing metaphors of a salad bowl or the, of a mosaic can't express that in the right way. That the power of America is its ideals, its ability to continue to be true to uh, whatever your group identity might be, but also its power to turn people into kids that are as American as apple pie all at the same time. Exit question, Yasha. One could argue that one of the big problems we have in America is growing anti-patriotism. We had you on to talk about critical race theory. A lot of Americans are being taught not to love their country, that this was a country that was founded for the purpose of perpetuating slavery and that we are not a good country. We're not an exceptional nation, that we're, in fact, an intrinsically racist nation. Call it what it is, the 1619 Project. The 1619 Project and the whole critical race theory that's being taught in so many schools today. And that has lots of implications, you know, for peace and security around the world. If we're not a good nation or, a, or a, an exceptional nation, then what business do we have telling other countries what they should be doing? What business do we tell to telling the Russians that they can't be committing genocide and war crimes in Ukraine? Who are we to tell the Russians that, that their conduct is, is terrible when, we're, when our conduct is just as reprehensible? Don't we need more patriotism, both civic and constitutional? I defend patriotism in part for that reason. Um, you know, when it comes to Ukraine, it, it really is because of patriotism, that so many millions of people are willing to, to, to risk their lives um, in, in defense of, of Ukraine against this terrible uh, invasion. Now, you know, for the purposes of this book, I really have thought, been thinking about, you know, why is it so hard to build diverse democracies that treat their members equally? And, and what can we learn from the history of other countries trying and very often failing to do that? And what kind of light does that shed on where we at in that project today. Now, I think that often the starting point here really matters uh, and is often the wrong one, which is that a lot of people say, understandably, and perfectly rightly at some level, 
know, how hard can it be not to be bigoted? How hard can it be not to be racist? How hard can it be to treat everybody fairly? And when you look at society today, and there are some obvious ways in which there are injustices, in which people are being discriminated against, in which racism does persist. And so then from this initial optimism, you can quickly fall into a deep pessimism, which says, well, you know, if this is so easy and we're failing at it, then we must be uniquely bad. There must be some way in which we're especially bad. You know, I'm a comparativist by training, so I try to compare different countries and see what's similar and different about them. So I'm perhaps not as much of an exceptionalist as you are. But you know who's even more exceptionalist than you are, Mark? It is the people who say that America is the root of all evil in the world because they're exceptionalists in their, in their own way. They think that America stands uh, above and beyond all other nations in its capacity for evil. Um, now, when you have a starting point that I think is more realistic, which is that actually most of our societies in the history of the world have failed in really, in really terrible and cruel ways, have led to civil wars and genocides and uh, some of the darkest chapters of humanity. And when you realize that that comes from a deep human instinct to form groups and favor the members of the in-group over anybody who's an outsider, uh, then you can actually look back at the present reality in the United States and say, hey, there are problems and there are injustices and we have to take them seriously. But by comparison to all of these other societies, we're actually doing pretty well. By comparison to our own past, we're doing very well. We're doing much better. The trajectory is actually going in the right direction. And so we should double down on, I think, the right reading of American history, which is that it is a deeply flawed country that has always had serious injustices, although we also do have a set of values and a set of rules that if only we lived up to them, uh, would fix those injustices. And though we've come a reasonably long way uh, towards that. And so we should have optimism about the changes of the last decade and fight even harder to live up to the ideals in our constitution, the ideals that, that form the basis of our politics. That is the right way to end. Yeah. Yeah, you sound like a excellent exceptionalist, <laughs> and and exactly and exactly what we want in an immigrant. And speaking speaking as an immigrant myself, and Marcus, the child of an immigrant, that's exactly right. We are the great country of which we speak. <laughs> Thank you, Yasha. This was terrific. I'll go back to my original point, which is that America's an exceptional nation because it's a nation founded on an idea, not on blood and soil. And also it's, an, it's a nation of immigrants from the first day. We forget the, there's this tension between newcomers and the people who had been here for a long time. If you came here on the Mayflower, I got news for you. You're descended from boat people. <laughs> right? <laughs> you are descended from, you know, you're, you're descended from the rejects of Europe. These were the, the people who came to found this country were the people who couldn't who couldn't make it in the stratified, class-driven societies of monarchies. Europe, monarchies and all the rest of it, and came over here for a new chance. So there's literally no difference between the immigrants on the Mayflower and the latest Ukrainian or Afghan refugees who are coming over here, except their mode of transportation. And that is what has made this country so so special, so unique, and what continues to do. And so I think we need a resurgence of patriotism in this country. And I don't, I don't understand why people get upset about nationalism in America because nationalism in America is no threat to anybody because national, it's a nationalism based on an idea. But hang on a second. Let's be honest. First of all, the word nationalism, you can retake it, and that's fine, and I appreciate it. 
but there's a reason why I prefer the word patriotism because nationalism, I think, is wrapped up with a lot of unpleasant ideas. And while, you know, go Mark, take back nationalism as our own and redefine it as a good thing, the reality is that nationalism has been associated with nasty things like America First. You know, we talked about this with Matt Continetti. It's a different kind of nationalism. But and, it is and, nationalism nonetheless. Okay. What's bad about nationalism is the idea that your country is better than others. Or that your country should except, have nothing to do with except, others. Except our country is better than others. <laughs> it is. We proudly say as Americans, we're the greatest country in the face of the earth. We're the greatest country in human history because of the ideas, Dan. You are erasing. This is like saying that our country is the greatest country on earth, but we've never made mistakes. Of course we've made mistakes. Let's say, and there is, I'm and, not saying and a lot of American nationalism historically has been racist. It has been anti-Semitic. It has been isolationist. It has been exceptional in every one of the bad ways. And, and that's why I hate the expression America first, because Charles Lindbergh was a fucking scumbag and you know and a hater and damn it i'm glad we went into world war ii and i'm glad we helped the forces of freedom when we did the right thing you know and and the notion that 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 nationalism hasn't been a term that has been used by charles Lindbergh and his descendants is ideological descendants is wrong so that's my discomfort with it but there is an important point that you make here where i agree with you thank you finally uh for once which is which is throat clear in there, but okay. Go ahead. Get, let's get to why I'm right, Danny. No, we're getting to we're getting to me trying to make your 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 statement sound sound more correct. I do agree with with a certain relativism here. There's a there's a talk that I give that I really enjoy. People say, you know, what are we doing in other countries? You know, nation building is terrible. Why are we trying to export democracy? You know, what do we have going on? And, and I always say, you know what? What do you dislike about religious freedom? What do you dislike about women's rights? You know, do you think girls shouldn't go to school? What do you dislike about a country where you can vote every two years, and sometimes more often than that? What do you dislike about those things? Aren't those things better than what you know the Russias of this world have to offer? What the Chinas of this world have to offer? what the Syrias of this world or the Egypts of this world have to offer, of course we're better. And those rights, and those things are in the Bill of Rights, those rights are actually better. I have no problem telling other countries that there are certain aspects of American life and the Constitution and our system of governance and our people in many instances that are just better. That's better. Not because we're white or because we're not white, or for any other reason, but because those are our values. And it doesn't erase the flaws in our country, the flaws in our founding, the fraught history of race in this country, but the principles in the Declaration, the problem wasn't the principles in the Declaration, the problem was that we weren't living up to them fully, and we're still not living up to them fully, but we're, as my, my pastor friend, Monsignor Charles Pope, likes to say, I ain't, I ain't who I want to be, but I'm not who I used to be. We're getting better every day, and we're getting closer every day. But those principles that our very flawed founding fathers wrote down on paper are... Enduring and great. Enduring and the greatest ideas ever written down to declare the founding of a nation. As evidenced by what's happening on our southern border today, where it's not just Central Americans and Mexicans coming over, but it's literally... It's, it's, it's the, everyone. It's the United <laughs> Nations. It's literally every member of the United Nations is at our southern border trying to get in. And it's evidenced by the fact that people around the world are aspiring to those ideas and living by those ideas. And so we, we have to stop 
tearing down our own country and teach. And the problem is, is that if we don't teach our kids about the superiority of those ideas and, and embrace them, then it gets lost. Once we get one generation that doesn't believe in them anymore or doesn't or is taught to believe that our country, as, as Yasha said, is not just not good, but is evil, then we lose our standing in the world to promote those ideas and to help other people uh, achieve them. And we're going to stop our forward progress. And so we have to we should we should be unabashedly proud we can, we can, but we can also we can also teach those things in different and better ways. And I think that's one of the lessons that Yasha is trying to talk about, which is that there are different ways to talk about how great this country is. I agree with you. We should never be teaching people, you know, that our country is exceptionally evil, as I too often hear from my students at school. But I think I think thinking about it in creative ways, the creative ways that are rooted in the pride in our country, right, is not a is not a bad thing. And with that, folks. Pride in our country, great place to end. Don't hesitate, you know, subscribe to our Substack, subscribe to our podcast, send Mark suggestions for how he can be more right every single week. And, and send any suggestions on how she could get it right for the first time. <laughs> Except when she's telling me I'm right. <laughs> Do you get that, folks? Do you get how to do that? Thanks for listening. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.